Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, which has... um, that we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together and just be encouraged, strengthened, informed, educated by your word. That as our Lord prayed, it is through your word that we are sanctified, that we are set apart to your service through your word. That we are to study diligently your word because it is your word. And it is through your word that we are spiritually matured and strengthened through your word and God the Holy Spirit using your word in our life. Father, we all have a new identity since we trusted in Christ as Savior. Instantly, our identity was no longer tied to Adam, but we were identified with your death, burial, and resurrection and placed in union with you by God the Holy Spirit. We are in Christ, Scripture teaches. And with that comes privileges and blessing that is beyond anything we can truly understand. And we are to live in light of all of those blessings and that position, that new identity. And yet, Father, so often we fall short. But, Father, we pray that as we continue to study your word that we will continue to grow and God the Holy Spirit will continue to enlighten us, making the sense of Scripture clear to us. And we pray that that will be clear this morning as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you may not have noticed it this morning, but I feel a little bit off balance. We left where we were staying in South Africa at 7 o'clock Friday morning. That was about midnight, or we left at about 7.30, and that was about 12.30 in the morning, Friday morning. We got home at 1.30, I think it was, yeah, 1.30 yesterday afternoon. That's 36 hours. Now, I'm used to going to Ukraine. I'm used to going to Israel probably 16 hours longer in those door-to-door trips than this one was. So I'm uh, even though I got 10 hours of sleep in the last 24, I wish I'd had about 20, 24 hours of sleep. Uh, so I'm a little, I feel a little bit wobbly and off balance mentally this morning, but nevertheless, we're going to get into this. This is a great passage. I got a great opportunity to think it through over the last couple of weeks and to work through some things. And I started off looking at four verses, and I scrunched it down to one, and I don't think I'm going to get all the way through the first verse of this because there's so much in this particular passage. But the one thing we need to do, and that is to 
continue a little bit of the review and summary that we covered last time. In the previous lesson before I left for Africa, we had looked at how the new man, old man distinction must be understood not in the individual sense, but in a corporate sense. And that means that we are in, we were all part of the old man in our position in Adam. A phrase that, of course, we're all familiar with for many, many years. We were all born in Adam. And that's the old man, all that we were before we were saved individually. But it's more than that. It is that our position was in Adam. That, and the text says that that the old man was continually being corrupted. Uh, through the centuries and continues to be corrupted. But at the instant of salvation, we become a new creature, a new creation, literally, in Christ. It's that position in Christ that is the opposite of our position in Adam. And so because we are now in Christ, Paul says at the very beginning of this epistle that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's this this corporate concept. And so we have gone through the first four chapters of Ephesians, and I think that as we prepare to get into the next paragraph, uh, though last time I reviewed a lot in terms of how what we've learned about the new man, old man distinction relates to our spiritual life. Now what I want to do is trace this a little bit through the, um, uh, through the argument, the structure of what Paul is saying in, in Ephesians. So we're, we're, we've moved from the first three chapters, which talked about the wealth that we have in Christ, and now it's what is considered to be the more practical part, and that is our walk in Christ. So, um, and in our walk in Christ, we have a new code of conduct, a code of conduct for the new man. And what we see in Ephesians um, chapter 4, verse uh, 25, is that this is characterized by truth versus the lie. So, in terms of our review, we've seen from the very beginning of our study that this. This epistle has three basic sections. The first is talking about the wealth that we have in Christ, all that we've been given from the instant of salvation, to our walk, that we are to walk worthy. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, remind you of what that means. And then we get down to 610 through the end of, cha- uh, of the chapter. It's talking about our warfare. And there's a distinction there. There's some similarities with the previous section, but... Paul begins 6.10 with the phrase, finally. So that indicates a break in what he has been saying to go to the, to the third sec- session. So what we saw in that first chapter was that God distributed a wealth or distributes a wealth of riches to those who are in Christ. Now, I want to say something here. I developed this when we were doing the, when I was doing the introduction to Ephesians. The only change I have made in light of what we have studied recently in the new man, old man, is I've underlined the phrase in Christ or something related to that in this breakdown because everything was already there from the very big time we began the study. 
So God distributes a wealth of riches, spiritual riches, to those who are in Christ. And so it's broken down in terms of what is the role of the Father and then the Son and then God the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 15 to 23, Paul has a prayer for knowledge and understanding for spiritual growth. We are saved for the purpose of good works is what he's going to say in uh, Ephesians 2.10. That is our purpose. God didn't save us to stop growing at that point, but to start growing. And too often Christians just die on the vine, as it were. They don't lose their salvation, but they never they never grow beyond spiritual birth, which is sad. In in the ch- second chapter, in verses one through ten, uh, Paul talks about how God has provided for us a new position and purpose for er- every believer that is in Christ. We have this new position, and we are saved. Ephesians. Ephesians 2.10 emphasizes the fact that we are saved for the uh, purpose uh, of good works. We are his artifact. We are uh, his, this creation uh, in Christ for what? For good works. That's 2, 1 through 10. Now, having laid that foundation, he moves on to focus on this new entity that has been uh, created. And that is the body of Christ, the church. He says, God provides a new privilege and peace for Gentile and Jew together in Christ. That's, that's foundational to understanding the rest of the epistle. And it's amazing that you have various theological systems that, that really just don't do well at all with this particular section that there's, as 1 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians states, there are three groups of people on this, on the, in this world today. There are those who are unsaved Jews. There are those who are unsaved Gentiles. And then there's the body of Christ where Jew and Gentile distinctions are no longer relevant. We are the church. So you have three groups, unsaved Jews, unsaved Gentiles, and the church, church-age believers, anyone who trusts in Christ and so we have this new privilege and position because we are all in Christ. In 3, 1 to 13, God provides a new organism, the church, the body of Christ, to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And then he closes the first three chapters on, on the wealth of the, the believer in, in Christ with a prayer of thanksgiving to God for his provision of this new position in Christ. And in Christ, he has uh, provided for us above and beyond anything that we can ask or think according to that particular prayer. And we act like paupers instead of the wealthiest of all of God's creations, all of the believers of all time. No one has the wealth that church-age believers have. And then there's a transition to the walk of the believer. That is the lifestyle, how we are to think, how we are to act, how we are to live, how we are to talk. And that is described in 3, 1 to 6, 9. We are to walk worthy of that calling with which we have been called, and it is to be in unity. And that is not unity at the expense of doctrine, but that is unity on the basis of doctrine. 
And those who depart from doctrinal accuracy are the ones who are uh, fragmenting the unity, not those who are insisting on biblical orthodoxy. Uh, this is what is always claimed by the liberal faction of Christianity since uh, the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century is that it is those who are insisting on inerrancy and infallibility and the absolute authority of the scriptures that are the ones who bring about this fragmentation in the body of Christ. No, the those who are insisting on conforming their lives and their thinking to the world are the ones who are the, the, the fragmenters. We're to walk worthy in the unity that was instantly ours at the moment of salvation. And then in verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 17 to 5, 1, we are not to walk like unbelievers, but we are to walk in righteousness and holiness. That's 4, 7 to 5, 1. It's further described in 5, 2 through 7 is walking in love and walking as children of light in 5, 8 through 14. We are to walk carefully in biblical wisdom in terms of how it impacts our relationships, primarily within the family, but also in terms of employment. Uh, in, in the context, it talks about, about slaves being obedient to their masters and masters not aggravating their, their slaves, but that has application to employer and employment responsibilities. And then in verses 10 through 20, we are to put on the whole armor of God that we may stand uh, and stand firm, and that is repeated several times within that context. Now in this second part, in 4, 1 through 6, 9, the emphasis is in our, in our Christian walk. It's, it's established by the first verse that we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. So we are to walk in unity, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And to do that, Christ has given spiritual gifts to the church in order to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. The only two of the four gifts that are still operable are the gift of evangelist and the gift of pastor-teacher. And that they are to equip us so that we can maintain or, or uh, strive to maintain that unity that is already ours. In 4.17 to 19 and 4.20 to 24, it relates to what he says about the fact that we have already put on the new man. That's the one sentence I changed in order to uh, correctly represent what we studied. You have already put on the new man. It is not a command to put on the new man, as some many translations put it. It is a recognition of what has already taken place. And then in 425 to 32, the paragraph that we are uh, beginning, uh, we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then in the first part of chapter 5, we are to walk in love. And then as we get in to the second paragraph of chapter 5, we are to walk in the light. We're to walk in wisdom in 515 to 21. Uh, that involves husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, wives loving uh, wives uh, respecting their husbands, submitting to their husbands in terms of his his leadership, 
and for the fathers leading in the home spiritually, uh, rearing the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Notice that command is not given to the wives' men. That is your responsibility. Now, because mothers are with the children more, they certainly have responsibility there. But the primary responsibility, the one held accountable for the spiritual welfare of the home, is going to be the husband, the father. And so there is the uh, emphasis on the filial honor uh, in the home and uh, fathers in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and then directions towards servants and masters or slaves and masters and the Lord in 6, 5 through 9. So that's the section that we're in. So we're looking at that new paragraph that comes up in uh, chapter chapter 4, uh, starting in verse uh, 25. But I want to contextualize this a little more. Uh, we have this opening command in 4.1. Uh, there, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, you all, the those who are his readers, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, as I pointed out when we went through this passage, you have these two words, the calling and that with which we were called. And it seems to be a little more of an antiquated concept today to talk about your uh, what you do in life, your prime, understanding of your primary purpose and focus in life, as your calling. Uh, that word comes from are your vocation. And that word comes from a Latin word, vocare, which just is a translation of, of the, the Greek word here for, for calling. And so we are to walk worthy of this calling. And what I am going to say now is to add something to this. This calling with which we have been called, this high position, is what? It's our position in Christ. This is equivalent to talking about the new man. That's our calling, is to live consistently with who we are in Christ positionally. So we have this emphasis on the calling, this new position that we have in Christ. It's our new vocation. Now, vocation is an important word. It's one that has an everyday usage, but it has a technical usage that comes from, comes from Scripture. But we have to break it down just a little bit. So the word is a, a, a noun, vocation. And the first meaning listed in the Collins English Dictionary, it is that it is a specified occupation or a profession or trade. Now, I want to zero in on the fact that this is a specified profession, okay? We need to think about this as our our new profession. You may have, think of a profession as being a doctor, being a lawyer, being an educator, being a pastor. A lot of people use the word profession to refer to things that are trades. They think that it's a profession to be a plumber, a profession to be an electrician. However, technically, when they used to, I, I haven't checked this in years, but I did about 40 years ago in college, that there were only about 
30 or 25 or 30 professions that kept getting larger. But trades, trades were not part of vocation, were not part of professions. A profession was something that was distinct and had certain qualifications. That's why in the definition it makes a distinction between a profession or a trade. And so this relates to a, a special calling. Uh, in the second meaning, he's, uh, Collins uh, English Dictionary says it's a special urge, inclination, or predisposition to a particular calling or career, especially a religious one. So in Roman Catholicism, if you are a, a priest or a nun, then you have a calling, a vocation. It doesn't apply to others, and that's a false dichotomy that Scripture doesn't support, making a distinction between clergy and laity. Uh, the second uh, B meaning under two is such a calling or career. And so that gives us a better understanding. Now, in Australia, when I was researching uh, the professions, there is a specific statement by the Australian Council of Professions. A profession is a disciplined group of individuals who adhere to ethical standards and who hold themselves out as and are accepted by the public as possessing special knowledge and skills in a widely recognized body of learning derived from research, education, and training at a high level, and who are prepared to apply this knowledge and exercise these skills in the interest of others. Now, that is an excellent description of those who are called into Christ, that's our calling. We have a high calling, and there are standards, ethical standards, to which we should adhere. And we have, we possess, are, are supposed to possess special knowledge and skills uh, related to a body of learning, the learning of the Word of God, and that this education and training is to continue on a regular basis. And so that's why this term, a prof profession, is a good way to talk about this calling. And it is uh, also related to the fact that this is our position now in Christ. So the calling then relates to a special profession in this sense. The calling is our new position in Christ, the new man. So we have this new position, this elevated position in Christ that is ours positionally at salvation, and we are to live in light of that position uh, because that is our calling so that we can fulfill the mission that God, Christ has given us in the church. So we saw that, number one, those who are the called are a distinct group of individuals who have been given a certain position in Christ which requires the adherence to a distinctive way of life. Now, that's always a struggle for a lot of young believers. And I don't mean young, meaning children or physical children or adolescents, but those who are new in the faith. And there are those who are growing who uh, recognize this from an early stage. One of the situations I found myself in when um, when we were in uh, South Africa was that the lady who ran much of the farm and the um, operations there uh, had been given a copy of the 
promise book about seven or eight months ago, and so she was so excited to meet me and to talk about things. And she's been working with this young girl who's a relatively new believer, as well as young chronologically. And she was really struggling with some things in her spiritual life. And I happened to have come back and uh, seen uh, this this woman on the phone, and I was walking by, and I said, just waved hi, and I didn't want to interrupt her, and she immediately grabbed me, and she said, I'm, t- I'm talking to this girl now. You need to talk to her. And so instantly, as I was told when I was ordained, you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. That goes for deacons as well. Um, so I talked to her, and part of her problem is she's a young believer, and she wants to grow, and she is really uh, extremely positive and just just cannot get enough learning from Scripture. But she struggles with the fact that these other uh, young people in her peer group uh, are make a profession of faith, that is, they claim to be believers, and I said that, you know, they are, but they just want to live like everybody else in their generation. They don't want to live a distinctive life for the Lord. And I just explained to her, I said, everybody grows at different rates in different ways. We come to a realization of what uh, our responsibilities as a believer are sometimes early, sometimes late in our spiritual spiritual life for various reasons. And I said, you just have to deal with these people in grace. And what I was thinking in the back of my mind is when uh, the Lord told Peter uh, uh, what would happen to him in terms of the fact that he would, in the future, that he would give his life for his faith in Christ. And Peter goes, well, what about John? See, that's the way it is with so many believers. Well, what about this believer? What about that believer? And Jesus said, it's none of your business. You know, I've got a plan for him, and I've got a plan for you, and it doesn't matter to you what my plan is for other people. And so I was explaining to her that you you don't need to put your eyes on other people and their failures or what they're doing or not doing in their Christian life. Your focus needs to be on your own on your own spiritual life and spiritual growth. So we all grow in a distinctive way, but but the obligation placed upon us as believers in Christ is to grow to spiritual maturity, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that we may be able to serve him uh, effectively. There are four four factors that this new Christian life are grounded on. The first is that in order to fulfill our calling, Christians need to acquire a specialized knowledge from the Scripture and to develop from that knowledge skills related to thinking and living. Skills, that's wisdom. That's what the biblical word uh, chokmah, Hebrew word, in the Old Testament means. It's skill at living, skill at applying the word to our life. Uh, We have a specialized knowledge. It comes from the Word of God. And there are many people today who rebel against that. So we have to uh, acquire that knowledge, and that only comes through regular uh, involvement in Bible class, in our own personal Bible reading, memorization of Scripture, and our own personal uh, spiritual growth. And so this is primarily to take place within the context of a local church where the saints are equipped for 
every area of ministry. That's what we studied in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Second, the acquisition of this knowledge and these skills is for the purpose of serving the Lord. We are saved to do good works, Ephesians 2, 10, but that is further defined as uh, doing the work of ministry, serving the Lord, and we have to grow and mature in order to accomplish that. The third part of this, or the third factor, is that it's inherent that a central part of this calling is to live a life that adheres to a particular code of conduct which governs the thoughts, decisions, and actions of the individual believer. That code of conduct is in it's in the scriptures in Christ. There, it's the 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 code of conduct for the new man. I don't know what it is like in a lot of corporations today or places of employment. I know that um, that if you go into the military, if you're a commissioned officer, there is a officer's handbook that describes what you can and should not do as uh, officers in the United States Army. And there's a lot of protocol to learn and to follow if you are an officer in the, in the military. I know that in the early days of IBM, everybody who worked at IBM had to wear a white shirt and a dark suit. And that was your dress code. I know when I first started teaching school, we were not allowed to have a beard. You could have a mustache, but your hair had to be of a certain length and your uh, sideburns had to be cut at a certain length, uh, but you could have a trimmed mustache. And you also had to wear a tie. You didn't have to wear a coat. When I was a seminary student at Dallas Seminary, back when they uh, understood that you have to teach these principles to men, most of whom are coming out of college or pretty close to it, we had to wear a coat and tie to class. Now, some guys stretched it a little bit, and in the winter they would just put on a tie and a heavy coat and not, not a suit coat or sport coat. But you had, and we could not have beards or mustache or any any. Uh, you could have a mustache, but no no beard. And I think I was the first person to first graduate to walk across the stage with a beard, not because I was rebellious, but because of the way things happened. I had um, I was gra- t- graduating in August, and I had taken a position as the director of a wilderness backpacking ministry. And I made it to graduation on the way back from four weeks in, of backpacking in Colorado. And so I just didn't have time to shave or anything like that. A year later, they changed the dress code, but had nothing to do with me. Um, so there's a code of conduct for believers. And fourth factor is that uh, living according to these standards is the result of consistently walking by means of the Spirit and being led and filled by the Word of God, are filled with the Word of God by the Holy Spirit, who develops in us the character traits distinct, that distinguish those who are living in light of their calling. Those character traits are the character traits of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 2:19, we're told that this new entity, the union of Jew and Gentile together, is called. We're called fellow citizens uh, with the saints. We're members of the household of God. 
And this is a building that is the Holy Spirit is building this as a temple on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's not Old Testament prophets. The order is apostles and prophets. If it was prophets and apostles, it would be chronological, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. But because it's apostles first, this is talking about the New Testament spiritual gifts of the four uh, offices mentioned or four gifted people mentioned in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. You have uh, apostles, second prophets, third evangelists, fourth pastor teachers. So this is talking about the church age gifted leaders who are uh, the foundation and Jesus Christ, the chief capstone. In Ephesians 2.15, he creates uh, created through his death on the cross. He abolished the law of commandments uh, or the enmity of the law of commandments between Jew and Gentile and created in himself one new man. That's the first use of it. So we have to interpret su- subsequent uses of that term unless it were to be defined differently. We have to uh, we have to interpret it on the basis of its clear definition in 2.15, which is talking about this new entity. Uh, one, he created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both, that is Jew and Gentile now corporately in Christ, are reconciled to God in one body. So we're one new man and one new body. Just in these two verses, you have two of them. So I had uh, some help putting this together, and we have uh, the uh, prior to Christ at the upper level, we have team Gentile on the left and team Jew on the right, and this is the old man. And then when we're saved, that we are in Christ, and there's no more a distinction between Jew and Gentile. We are Christians on team church. And this is based on Ephesians 2.15, that he's created in himself one new man from the two. So we talked about the fact that in Christ we're called a new man, a new body, and a holy temple in that critical section of Ephesians 2, uh, 11-22. Furthermore, in other passages, he talks about the body of Christ. Another name is the bride of Christ. And then we have a third name, the royal priesthood or the family of God. This all distinguishes the same group of people who are the body of Christ. And then we're called a new household in Ephesians 2, uh, 19 and 20. So these are the new realities that we have through baptism by the Holy Spirit at its salvation. We're entered into union with Christ. And then in terms of our experience, our walk with the Lord, we're walking by the Spirit. Our position in Christ is stated in Galatians 3.7, we have put on Christ. But in Colossians 3.12, it talks about our day-to-day walk. We are to put on Christ in Colossians 3.12. So that brings us down to our passage. Ephesians 4.22, we're reminded you all, Jew and Gentile together, took off in the past concerning your former conduct, the old man which is growing corrupt according to deceitful lust. We put off the old man at salvation, the old man being our position in Christ. And we are being renewed. This is a different participle, present tense. 
We are to be renewed in the spirit of our thinking. That's the same thing that Paul says in uh, Romans 12.2, as not being conformed to the world, but being uh, renewed in our mind, in our thinking. And we are, we have already, we put off the old man and we past tense put on the new man at the instant of salvation, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is made more clear in Colossians 3.10 and 11, where Paul said, and have already put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge to the image of him who created him, where that is in the new man. Okay, in the new man, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. The point I'm making here is that if the new man is individual, then why would he say where in the individual there is neither Greek nor Jew? That just doesn't make sense. So this shows that it's in this new man, this corporate entity, that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised. Uh, Christ is all in all. Second Corinthians 5.17, we're a new creation in Christ. All things have passed away. All things are new. So then we, I want to go back to this passage, and then I'm not going to get to the next verse, but this sets us up for it. But you all have not so learned Christ that is not in terms of living like an unbelieving Gentile. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him. See, he's talking about the same thing. You hear, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Uh, You have heard him and have been taught by him as truth is in Jesus. Now, here is the, the difficulty for modern man, is modern man has rejected the concept of truth. And in its place, we have moral relativism. But the Bible clearly teaches there is absolute truth, truth that is true for every human being, and it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. There is one truth that is true for every individual throughout all of time, and that is absolute truth. And that truth it is stating, is in Jesus. Now, that is a prepositional phrase that relates to the sphere of the location of that truth. So we're taught, and the truth is in Jesus. Now, I want to stress this, because truth is the real issue that we're getting to in verse 25, that where the passage quotes from the Old Testament Uh, Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So speaking truth, a lot of people read this as saying you're telling true things. That's not what this is talking about. Truth has to do with that which is revealed from God. That's the context. And so um, this word aletheia is very important in the context here that the truth that is being talked about is that which is in Jesus. And so we ought to translate this as the truth is in Jesus. The word truth here doesn't have an article in front of it in in the Greek. In English, you would need an article for it to be definite. But Greek has an interesting thing about nouns. There's several different ways that an article can, can be used. 
But when the article is not present, it's emphasizing the qualitative nature of the noun. And so here it should be understood as the truth. It's emphasizing its quality. Just as in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. The Word God does not have an article with it because you're stressing the quality of the noun. And so it doesn't need to have have an article. Um, but in John 1, 14, and then 16 and 17, in, as part of his introduction, John, uh, the writer of the gospel, says, and the word that is the Logos, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, uh, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes on to say, and of his fullness, notice those two words, full of grace and truth, and now of his fullness, that fullness of his grace and truth, we have all received and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean there was no grace or truth before Jesus and that there wasn't grace and truth in the Mosaic law but not to the degree that it is revealed in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity into the uh, hypostatic union, including the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this passage, you have the word full of grace and truth. This is a phrase. You don't break down the phrase into its component parts to understand it or you'll miss it. It's the idiomatic way that you describe a person's character. They are full of grace and truth. They're full of the spirit and wisdom. It's used many times in the, in, in Acts. And it's the, it's not the same word that we have for the filling of the spirit in Ephesians 5.18, which is playrao. It's, uh, the adjective play race that's used with a double complement, two words, grace and truth. So full of grace and truth is just describing that this is the spiritual maturity and the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ as the one who reveals grace and truth. And then the second word, fullness, is the word I have on the right on the screen, pleroma, and that refers to something that is completed, its fullness, it, it, its full representation of uh, that is in Christ. Of his fullness we have received, uh, and grace for grace, and then he repeats again that grace and truth came through Christ. So grace and truth represent all that Christ is. So when Paul states that, he's simply saying that that truth uh, truth was in uh, in Christ. Uh, the truth is in Christ is the same as saying that Christ rep- is full of grace and truth. Then we get to 425. 425 is important because it is so badly mistranslated. The New King James is like many other translations, translates it, therefore, putting away lying. They translates this word as lying. The ing in English is either a participle or a gerund. We're going to get into a little grammar before we close. It's not a part, it's not verbal in the Greek. It's a noun. So you can't translate it as a gerund, which is a verb being used as a noun, 
and you can't translate it as a participle. You can't put ing on the end of it, in other words. So that's not what it is saying at all. Horrible translation. I would translate it this way. For this reason, that is, the reason is that you have put on the new man. For this reason, because you have already put off, it's the same verb you have for putting off the old man. So you put off the old man, and that includes you have already put off the lie. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So in order to get into that, we have to develop a few important doctrines in this particular verse. The first is, what is the lie? And what we need to understand is the foundation for the lie is the creator-creature, is is the rejection of the creator-creature distinction. That's its foundation. And that is exactly what Satan did in his uh, five I wills in Isaiah chapter uh, 14. Uh, He denies the distinction between himself and God. He's want, I want to be like God. I want to be the Almighty. He does the same thing as it's portrayed in Ezekiel 28, 14 and following. And we'll look at those passages. But the lie begins with the rejection of the creator-creature distinction so that the creature becomes the creator and the creature thinks that he can define reality. He doesn't have to conform to the reality that God created. And we see that all the time today. We see people who say, well, uh, my, my biology says that I am a man, but I feel like a woman. So I can redefine my reality. No, you can't. All you're going to do is confuse yourself and, and destroy your life. This is a problem. People want to redefine uh, truth and what is right and what is wrong. Once you get rid of the, the creator, then, you, then each individual becomes the ultimate determiner of what is right and wrong, the ultimate determiner of truth. And this is what the book of Judges is all about. It's what happened in Israel. When they rejected the creator-creature distinction and went into idolatry, every man did what was right in his own eyes, moral relativism. And that leads to self-destruction and the destruction of a culture and a destruction of a nation. And so this is fundamental. So we've, we've, I brought us up to date both in terms of summary of how new man, old man fits within our understanding of the spiritual life and now how it fits within the context of what Paul is saying in Ephesians and where this is taking us. So uh, I'll be back in, in two weeks, and we will pick up at that point, and we have a lot to cover in this next section, next section. And so we'll drill down on that starting next time. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word and to be reminded of our responsibilities and obligations as members of your royal family, that we are now in Christ. We have a high calling, a high position because of who we are in Christ and our new identity. And that, Father, we need to live in light of that new identity And so, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with this. And as we go through these passages and as uh, all of these imperative uh, verbs and prohibitions that we run into define for us the boundaries of of our, our code of conduct, of how we are to think, how we are to live, how we are to talk as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, this is not how we get saved. We need people who are not saved to understand the truth here, that we are saved not by works, but by grace through faith, and that is simply trusting in the gospel, trusting in Christ. And then we are saved for good works. That's the purpose. Often believers fail in this miserably, and they never grow. They never go anywhere, but yet they will have eternity in heaven. They have everlasting life. Father, we pray that the gospel would be clear to those who have been uh, listening to this message online or here that salvation is only by faith in Christ, trusting in him alone for our salvation. So, Father, we ask that you challenge us with what we're studying because it is calling us to a higher level of expectation than perhaps we have thought of. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.